You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk, the literature corner. Eusebius does this once in a while where he reads from a book and invites you to find your book, your passage, your prose, your poetry, whatever the case may be, that resonates with you, that sits very well with you, that you would like to share with us today. Uh, the next half an hour is exactly that, where I take your calls to air where you are reading from a book, a passage that has marked and resonated with you the deepest. 021-446-0567-0118830702. I will be reading from Judith February's Turning and Turning, Exploring the Complexities of South Africa's Democracy. It is a book published by Picador Africa, um, out of interest, Banim Tomboti, um, on the cover of the book, writing in this excellent book, Judith February, one of South Africa's finest political analysts, dissects the ills of our country with quiet authority and insight. I highly recommend it. I'm picking up on page 237. In the book, Judith in part begins by introducing us to why she's written the book, uh, why she felt after the many years of working at Idasa and various other organizations writing about democracy, studying democracy and the constitution particularly, uh, why she needed to write this book. And I totally, totally agree with the uh, resolution you came to, Judith, that you have a voice, you have something to say about our state institutions and some of the more uh, prolific moments, I suppose, in our democracy. Where I pick it up is where you negotiate, talk about the issue of the land question, which obviously first came out um, from the NASRAC uh, conference of the ANC, the 54th uh, ANC conference that was held in December last year. On page 237, she writes, coinciding with Ramaphosa's election as president of of the ANC at NASRAC was the passing of the ANC's resolution of land expropriation without compensation. It was so controversial that ANC members were caught on video nearly coming to fisticuffs over the issue. It is entirely unclear whether Ramaphosa was in favor of the ANC resolution on land, but he had been dealt the hand and so he needs to play the cards. As president, he is advocating for a rational public debate on the matter. Land is an emotive issue. The land question needs to be understood in its rightful context and also in the context of the ANC's own history that is worth revisiting. The organization has a long and checkered history. As Africa's oldest liberation movement, it has had its fair share of challenges. While Ramaphosa's challenges may be legion, the organization has also had some illustrious leaders who led the ANC from its formation and dealt with many proverbial bumps in the road. In 1912, Solomon T. Blige played a key role in the founding of the South African Native National Congress, which would become the African National Congress in 1923. He was its first Secretary General and was part of a small mission educated black intelligentsia and deeply opposed to narrow tribalism. The first president of the SANNC, John Dube, was a minister, an educator. It is said that after Nelson Mandela cast his vote in 1994, he visited the grave of Dube and said simply, mission accomplished, poignant to say the least. While Pixley Gai Isakaseme, a lawyer, is regarded as the founder of the Congress. Like any party, the ANC was often racked by divisions. Andre Urendal, in his epic tome, The Founders, The Origin of the ANC and the Struggle for Democracy in South Africa, details those ups and downs. However, by all accounts, those early leaders had strong commitment to principle and were clear about the organizational values. 
Plaiki's own life and his work provide lessons not only in activism, but more importantly in leadership. He also provides us with an insight into the ideals of the ANC founders. Plaiki's war diary, written between 1899 and 1900, makes for fascinating reading. It is the only account by a black person of the siege of Mafikeng during the South African War. Plaiki's formal schooling was limited, yet he excelled in the civil exercise or service rather examinations, and on the eve of the war he was sent to Mafikeng. During the siege, he acted as a court interpreter. An account of his life tells us that he was drawn to journalism and established the first Setswana English weekly newspaper in 1901. He spoke at least eight languages and is considered one of South Africa's great public intellectuals. Plaiki's 1916 native life in South Africa provided an in-depth insight into South Africa after the passage of the uh, 1913 Natives Land Act. It details the disastrous effects of the act on South Africa's rural heartland and the assault on the rights of black South Africans during that time. The opening lines in Chapter 1 are as powerful as they are relevant today. Awaking on Friday morning, June 20, 1913, the South African native found himself not actually a slave, but a pariah in the land of his birth. He also writes, Mine is but a sincere narrative of a melancholy situation in which, with all its shortcomings, I have endeavoured to describe the difficulties of the South African natives under a very strange law, so as most readily to be understood by the sympathetic leader. In 1919, Plaiki took part in a meeting with then-British Prime Minister Lloyd George regarding the land question to no avail. In 2018, the land question remains precariously unresolved. And so she writes and reflects and probes and interrogates and engages. It's an important issue. It's an important book. Turning and turning, exploring the complexities of South Africa's democracy, written by Judith February, published by Picador Africa. What's your book? What's your paragraph? Give me a call on 021-446-0567 or 1188-30702. Connie is in Sydenham. Hello, Connie. Hi, Africa. Um, I'm reading from a uh, memoir by Tracy Going, Brutal Legacy. Uh, it goes as follows. Bruce, you're hurting me. It is my mother screaming. I can hear her agony through the haze of my sleep, through the closed door of my bedroom. It is the first time I've heard her in such pain. And as I leap from my bed and bolt across the room, I know instantly that this time is different. I grab at the door, yank it open, and launch myself down the passage, closer to the blood killing screams. I can hear my father's heavy grunts. I know he has her in the bathroom. Then suddenly I'm screaming too. Know that you're hurting her. I shout. My sobs and screams mingles as well. Thank you. Can you out of That's interest? Why that paragraph? Why that book? Um, so, as I was growing up, my mother really went through a very difficult time. With, when my father left my mother, she met somebody. And that man was so abusive that, I mean, I'm 45 now. And every time, you know, when I think about women, women's struggle, that comes to mind that this woman who carried seven kids and struggled to raise all of us as decent human beings, went through so much. I see how my mother every day, you know, her body is heavily burdened by the life stresses when she she was growing up, when she became a woman and she became a mother. So she carried us as seven kids and she really struggled to raise us. She's not the perfect human being, but she tried her best. But you know, the 
the abuse stays with you. You can do everything. My mother emotionally can see that she has had enough. She tries, you know, she tries to be loved by everybody, even when people are being abusive to her, even if family are being abusive to her, she'll always try and make friends with them and push hard. And I think that has made me resent the effect of the, the abuse in such a way that when somebody writes about things like that, I always want to find out and see how it relates to where I come from and maybe try not to repeat the same mistake. I can't say the mistake, but, you know, my mother had no choice at that time, and she saw, as an adult, we say to her, she's 75, we still say to her, you don't have to be with these people, you know, they're family, but they don't really love you. But she's longing for love. She's longing mm-hmm. for affection from, you know, people just so she can deal with her intense emotions and the life she went through. And she's got all of us, but she also wishes she could have a family as well, to, you know, loving her, her siblings. But it's tough, you know, how people grow up, they grow up differently. So that's the part, and I think that's the part that stood up, that stood out for me when I read it, because I think I was about 12 when this man almost killed my mother. You know, he almost killed my mother, and yeah, she's, he's still, you know, in some way controls how I feel about me and, and just the life, you know. Yeah. Anyway, that's, yeah, that's why I chose that part. Connie, thank you very much. I do hope you are seeking help. You are having conversations so that how you see men is not clouded by this abuser in your mother's life because there are many, many extraordinary men out there who who love, who are kind, who are warm, who are caring. They're waiting to be loved by you. Yes, I am, you know, and I am raising a son who will be 18 tomorrow. So I try to live in the best way I know how, and I want him to be a decent human being. So I do see good in men. Um, it's just those, you know, whenever you read about abuse, then it comes back, or when you see things happening on the news, then it comes back. But otherwise, sure. it's not like every man is the same, yeah. Connie, thank you very much. And a happy birthday to your little son tomorrow. 18 is a milestone, is it not? Uh, Connie was re- reading from Brutal Legacy by Tracy Going, a heart-rending book, no doubt. Jill, in Kensington, which book are you reading from today? Good morning. Are you talking to me, Jill? I am indeed, Jill. Good morning. Good morning, sir. I, you sound well, and I am too. I'm reading from the storyteller of Marrakesh. By Joy Deep, I'm going to mangle the name, Roy Batachara. Um, a story is like a dance. It takes at least two people to make it come to life. One who does the telling and the one who does the listening. Sometimes the roles are reversed and the giver becomes a taker. We both do the talking. We both listen. And even the silences become loaded from a small number of perfectly ordinary words. A tapestry takes place, suggestive of a dream, but close enough to a reality which, more often than not, remains elusive. It's a feat of mutual trust, of mutual imagining. What matters is whether or not we can believe each other's voices. And the test of that will lie in the story we make together. Thank you. Absolutely beautiful. Thank you very much, Jill. Thank you very much. Reading there from the storyteller of Marrakesh by Joy Dib Roy Bat.
Chara. Apologies for butchering that saying myself. Uh, more of your calls, please, on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. We also have a voice note that has read, and we'll be playing that after this. 702 and Cape Talk. The Literature Corner. We're inviting you to call us, to send us voice notes, if you choose to, to read to us from your favorite book. We'll be hearing from Tramagwini Mavovana, one of the producers of the show, in a moment. But before we do that, here's a voice note. Hi, Africa. Here's a piece for your literary corner. It's actually the lyrics for a song written by Chris Christopherson when he was basically trying to make it in Nashville and really was back to the wall. It's called To Beat the Devil. It was winter time in Nashville down on Music City Row and I was looking for a place to get myself out of the cold to keep the frozen feeling that was eating at my soul and keep the chilly wind off my guitar. My thirsty wanted whiskey, my hungry needed beans but it had been a month of payday since I'd heard that eagle scream. So with a stomach full of empty and a pocket full of dreams I left my pride and stepped inside a bar Actually, I guess you'd call it a tavern. Cigarette smoke to the ceiling and sawdust on the floor. Friendly shadows. I saw that there was just one old man sitting at the bar, and in the mirror I could see him checking me and my guitar. And he turned and said, Come up here, boy, and show us what you are. I said, I'm dry, and he bought me a beer. He nodded at my guitar and said, It's a tough life, ain't it? I just looked at him. He said, You ain't making any money, are you? I said, you've been reading my mail. He just smiled and said, let me see that guitar. I got some of you ought to hear. And then he laid it on me. If you waste your time of talking to the people who don't listen to the things that you are saying, who do you think's going to hear? And if you should die explaining how the things that they complain about are things that could be changing, who do you think's going to care? There were other lonely singers in a world turned deaf and blind who were crucified with what they tried to show, and their voices have been scattered by the swirling winds of time, because the truth remains that no one wants to know. Well, the old man was a stranger, but I'd heard his song before, back when failure had me locked out on the wrong side of the door, when no one stood behind me but my shadow on the floor, and lonesome was more than a state of mind. You see, the devil haunts a hungry man. If you don't want to join him, you've got to beat him. I ain't saying I beat the devil, but I drank his beer for nothing, and then I stole his song. And you still can hear me singing to the people who don't listen, to the things that I am saying, praying someone's going to hear. And I guess I'll die explaining how the things that they complain about are things they could be changing, hoping someone's going to care. I was born a lonely singer, and I'm bound to die the same, but I've got to feed the hunger in my soul. And if I never have a nickel... I won't ever die ashamed, because I don't believe that no one wants to know. Chris Christopherson. Thank you, Alistair. Thank you very much, Alistair. And we'll just play a few bars of that song that you've just read from. It was wintertime in Nashville, down on Music City Row. And I was looking for a place to get myself out of the cold. To warm the frozen feeling that was eating at my soul Keep the chilly wind off my guitar My thirsty wanted whiskey My hungry needed beans 
but it'd been a month of payday since I'd heard that eagle scream. So with a stomach full of empty and a pocket full of dreams, I left my pride and stepped inside a bar. Thank you very much to Chris Christopherson as well as Alistair for reading those uh, lyrics so beautifully there. Tramagwini joining us in our Joburg studios. Tramagwini, which book have you chosen from? I've chosen Nervous Conditions by Wutsiti Dangarembe. Go ahead. <laughs> so I've, I've got two experts, but I, I'll start with this one. This business of womanhood is a heavy burden, she said. How could it not be? Aren't we the ones who bear the children? When it is like that, when there are sacrifices to be made, you are the one who has to make them. And these things are not easy. You have to start learning them from an early age. The earlier the better so that it is easier later on. Easy. As if it is ever easy. And these days it is worse with the poverty of blackness on one side and the weight of womanhood on the other. What will help you, my child, is to learn to carry your burdens with strength. These words are spoken by Umashingai, Tambu's mother, in the chapter. It's page 16 in the book, and they really underscore the harsh reality faced by many Africans, particularly Afri- African women. Mashingai is arguing that being black and female is a double burden and that the two obstacles are too considerable to surmount. You know, what sets her apart from Tambu, however, is that she qualifies the statement. And I think, I think just with what's going on in the country, you know, with Women's Day, what women in the country are also facing. I thought it, you know, pertinent to highlight and read this book and take it and read it again because I had read it in university, but I thought, let me go back to it and read it again. Um, It, you know, ranges or it highlights a lot of feminist theories and, you know, uses a lot of concepts to understand, um, you know, feminism in in the African context. But yeah, that is my uh, contribution. So beautiful. And so, so apt much. and so appropriate. Thank you very much, Tama Thank, Thank you so much. That's a nervous condition by Zizi Dangaremba. We'll take a few more of your calls. 021-446-0567 or 11883-0702. Pick out a book, a paragraph, a song, a lyric that resonates with you the most and share it with us as we continue to celebrate literature by having you read for the listeners.